way. Whoa! Hold your horses. It's time for Kootenai for Kids. Your history lesson in just a few minutes without having to sit in that annoying desk. Brought to you by Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village in Pincher Creek, Alberta. By your education coordinator, Ranger Gore. Well, hello everybody and welcome back to Kootenai for Kids. Well, the other day we were talking about Kootenai Brown and oil. And you know, one of the problems that we have in history is we always talk about, you know, what the men did. You know, they were out on horseback and they were out shooting up and things and everything else and discovering things. But we don't talk enough about the lady. Kootenai Brown had a story about him being a noted pistol shot. Now, out of the Johnny Chinook book by, oops, I forgot to look at the name of the writer, because we want to be fair here, Johnny Chinook, Tall Tales and True from the Canadian West by Robert E. Gard. So, again, we're reading out of uh, Mr. Gard's book, and we're continuing, we're going to finish up the tales. Kootenai Brown was a noted pistol shot, and there was a man who we got this story from, and his name was Dan Riley, and he became a Canadian senator. And Senator Dan Riley told Mr. Gard, the author, one time that he and his partner, Lafayette French, wanted to see Kootenai Brown's horses. So they all walked down the path toward the lake to Kootenai's corral. As they walked along, two prairie chickens jumped into the trail and ran along ahead. Well, Kootenai pulled his six-shooter and he shot the birds while they were running. Bang! First one. Bang! Then the other. And he shot their heads off. And he was never seen without his Colt 45 at his side. Now, that's all very well and good, but uh, what Mr. Gart doesn't tell us here is, oh my gosh, what did they do with those two prairie chickens? Well, back in those days, of course, they don't waste food. They didn't just leave it on the ground. They would take those two prairie chickens home, and of course, they would clean them and eat them. But I'll tell you something. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Kootenai Brown who was probably doing the plucking of the feathers and dressing it out and putting in some nice dressing and baking it in the oven. It was probably Nietzsche Moose. Now, who is Nietzsche Moose? We're going to talk a little bit about her because Mr. Gard has some stories about her. Now, the interesting thing is... is uh, we go back and Kootenai Brown, yeah, he did shoot the heads off the chickens. And that made things a little bit easier for Nietzsche Moose because she didn't have to try to try to find out where that bullet was in the meat and didn't have to clean it out. So part of her job was done, but she still had a lot of work to do before they could eat those prairie chickens. I'll bet they tasted good. Now, Senator Riley mentioned when he got to the cabin that the Kootenai Brown house was spotlessly clean. And that is, of course, because it was being kept up by, by Nietzsche Moose. 
Now, Nietzsche Moose had about four names in her life. She, of course, was born a Cree lady of the Cree First Nation. And her first name, her name in her own language was Chini Peitakwo Kasun. Hey, I got it right the first time. She was also known by her neighbors as Isabella. Because I guess the people didn't want to say Chini Peitakwo Kasun. And Kudni called her Nichimus. We'll talk about that in a minute. And yes, she was a fine housekeeper. And the story of this fine lady is so closely tied up with Kootenay Brown that it's impossible to tell one story without mentioning the other person. And it's impossible to tell the stories of one without mentioning the other. Now, nobody knows exactly where Nietzsche Moose came from. Now, she was of the Cree First Nation, and the Cree First Nation weren't around southern Alberta. They were mostly in northern Alberta, and in central Saskatchewan, but they sometimes hunted in different places. Now, nobody knows exactly how Kootenay Brown and Chini Kasun met, but here's a story that Mr. Gard tells, and I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration. Early one spring morning, Chini Kasun left her prairie home in Saskatchewan to accompany her people of the Cree First Nation into the Rocky Mountains, where they were going to visit relatives at Bab, Montana. And there, they met a man named Kootenay Brown, a trader. And they went north to trade at his place at Waterton Lakes. And Kootenay was so fascinated by her that he offered to trade five horses for her on the spot, and apparently the offer was accepted. I don't know about that story. One folktale also relates that later in the day, Kootenay Brown staged a pony race, and he won back the horses. So he got the horses, and he got the hand of Chini Peta Kwakulkasun. Again, like I say, some of these are tall tales, and I don't think we really know the full story of how they met. But ever after that, Kootenay called her Nichimus. And her life with Kootenay Brown was filled with romance and adventure. And it was said she was the envy of all the other First Nations girls because Kootenay would buy her bright silks and gave her many gifts of beads and rings and always treated her with respect. Now that name he gave, Nichimus, meant my good woman. And he was the only one that was allowed to call her this name. And he saw to it that the others called her only Mrs. Brown, or Isabella. Anichi Moose never attempted to speak English because she thought somebody would make fun of her. But she could understand almost anyone, anything anyone said to her. And one time, Kootenay and Mrs. Brown had a bit of a fight. She piled all of the household goods into the wagon, hitched up the ponies, and she went back to see her relatives in Montana. Well, Kootenay followed very soon, and after that he promised that nothing like that would ever happen again, and she agreed to go home. Now, she had a deep love for Kootenay Brown, and when he was dying, he told her that if he could, he would return to her in the form of an eagle. Now, those of you who have seen Kootenay Brown's cabin, you know that there's a big golden eagle in there. 
Is this Kootenai Brown? Well, who knows? Well, after he did pass away, Nietzsche Moose waited eagerly for her, him to come back. He died in 1916. Sometime afterward, the first airplane to ever come into the mountains landed at Waterton. And as Nietzsche Moose saw that great bird skimming over the trees, she thought Kootenai had come back to her. And she rushed over to a neighbor's place calling, Kootenai, Kootenai, he come, he come. And then she ran towards the machine. And when she got up to the airplane, she pet the airplane all over. And she was murmuring while she was crying, Kootenai, Kootenai. And, oh, they say that Nichimu stayed by that airplane all night long. Now today you can visit Kootenai Brown's grave at Waterton Lakes and Nietzsche Moose is there, as is Kootenai's first wife, the Métis lady named Olivia Leonese. And it's a fitting place for the sleep of a legendary fi figure, for Chief Mountain is rises up to the east, and it's itself rich in legends. And it's here that the spirit of the great west wind had his home, and in a fierce encounter with the hero of the east, he hurled the great rocks which form a direct line for about 40 miles eastward. So that's a nice tall tale, and that wraps up our story of Kootenai and Isabella, but we're not done yet. If you've been to the cabin, you've probably been into Nietzsche Moose's kitchen, and many of the items in there are ironing board, pots and pans, or stoves, and her various kitchen tools, they're always there. And one of the things that I'm sure that Nietzsche Moose probably made, well, from time to time, and probably always had some around the kitchen, was Bannock. So stick around. Ranger Gord is going to go speak with Rosie the Riveter, and we're going to make some Bannock, and we're going to learn how to do it, and how to how you can make it at home. And um, sometimes when you have come to Kootenai Browns, you've, we've done it over the fire, but today we're going to be safe. We're going to do it over the stove. Okay, everybody. This is Ranger Gord back here, and we got Rosie the Riveter helping. Helping? Helping. Uh, as to make uh, learn how Nietzsche Moose would have made bannock in her kitchen. Well, I think Nietzsche Moose would have loved this kitchen. Uh, we've got stainless steel bowls and we've got measuring cups and everything else. And I think in the cabin it would have been a little bit more rustic. As Farley says, rustic. But um, we're going to go ahead and make some bannock here. And I got Rosie the Riveter here just because uh, she's done this before and it would go a lot faster and a lot less messy than if Ranger Gord was to stop. So I'm just going to talk while she does this. And Rosie the Riveter doesn't seem to think she has to talk through this. So say hi. Hello. Okay. She's not really good with microphones, but I'll do the talking. Just like uh, when your kids come to Kootenai Brown Village, Pioneer Village, I'm the one doing the talking, right? Okay, so Bannock is something, and um, if you haven't seen one of the demonstrations that we have before, it goes back actually to Scotland. In fact, that's where the name comes from, a place called Bannockburn. And uh, many Scots came from Europe, and Bannock was something that was made all over the British Isles, 
and usually they made it in a round flat pan and they'd make a big cake. It's like a cake, but it's not a tasty sugary cake like you're thinking of. It's a, it's a nice piece of bread and basically you could make this very, very quickly over a wood fire and you wouldn't have to worry about uh, putting yeast and waiting for it to rise and all of that things like you think of bread right now. So it was very quick and easy. Now, when the Scots came over to the fur trade to Western Canada, through Hudson's Bay and also through Montreal, they brought this recipe with them. And from it, it was acquired by the French, and it was acquired by the Iroquois, it was acquired by the Cree First Nation, and today it's still very much used amongst the Blackfoot people, especially our neighbors, the Pecani and the Bloods. Now, usually when uh, you've come to Kootenai Brown, we do it on a stick over an open fire. Now, if you're going to do this at home, just like in my own kitchen, always ask if we can do it first, all right? And make sure mom and dad are, are working with you, especially if you're going to use the stove or the oven. Do not touch the stove or the oven unless you have their permission or if you have them helping with you. And I'd say during this uh, health crisis we have, don't go out to the back and start any fires. Yeah, especially on windy days. You can try this, but uh, mom and dad got to be with you. I have to stop. Rosie the Riveter here, she's used to the assembly line and doing everything really, really quickly. That's why she's the Riveter. As we say, the, the, our, the native folk gathered this. Now, Rosie, what have you done? Okay, we're putting in flour. What, 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 what? And we're going to talk about the flour first. This is just grain flour, white grain flour, and you can make it from any kind of flour you want. Now, these days, a lot of people talk about gluten-free. They either don't like to eat gluten in their in their flour, or perhaps they're a little bit allergic to it, or they can't digest it. Uh, we did experiment with this a little bit last spring. And you can make it with, um, with non-gluten flour, which you can get in the store as well. So this is something that, uh, that we can make so that anybody can eat it. And so we have put how much? Four cups. Now, when you're going to do this, make sure you get a measuring cup. This isn't just grabbing your Hello Kitty cup and throwing stuff in. And we're using a stainless steel bowl. But I would imagine you can use any kind of a bowl. Make sure, again, that you're asking mom or dad what you can use. Okay, she's got a wooden stir stick out. And she's basically stirred the flour up because flour tends to get lumpy when it's sitting in the bag or the container. So she's stirring it all up so it's all the same. Now, she's got some salt. Yeah, and just good old ordinary salt. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. And they'd have had, they, you have to remember that the fur traders would have taken flour and salt along with them, either in the wagons or the Red River carts or in the canoes or the York boats as they were with them. So they would have had these supplies that they were taking to fur trading posts anyway. And now we've, we're putting in, what are we putting in? Canola oil. Okay, we're using canola oil. Now the reason we're using canola oil is the uh, mixture has to have something that will get it cooking. Yeah, you just, and that's what oil, the oil does. Now, in some recipes, 
they will say you can use melted butter. And uh, the reason we're using canola is if you've been to the to Kootenai Brown and done this with us, all of our bannock is made with canola because there are some people that can't have a milk product. And butter comes from milk. So that's why we use canola oil. Now back in the day, they definitely would not have had canola oil or necessarily had butter. Now what's interesting about this is you need some something to get this cooking. When you have it over the open fire and you see it start to get gray, well that's the oil or the butter doing its job. It's doing the cooking inside it. Now so what would they have used Ranger Gourd? Well they would have used fat. And the fat would have come from any animal that they might have killed for its fur. Perhaps a buffalo perhaps a bear, perhaps even something they scraped off of a beaver hide. Doesn't that just sound yummy, folks? So, yes, this isn't the authentic bear grease uh, uh, bannock, but uh, I, think, I think we can all get along with that. And now we have something called baking powder. I can't tell you too much about baking powder, and we'll just let it go in. How much are we putting into the baking powder? Four teaspoons of baking powder. And I seem to have read last night that you can actually use baking soda too. Which is good because I always get baking powder and baking soda mixed up. And now she's stirring all of that. We've got the flour. We've got your salt. You've got your canola. You've got your baking powder. Have we did the water yet? Oh, 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 just, oh, she got it in the cup, in there. She has got one and a half cups of warm water, and that's just warm water out of the tap, right? So you just let it run for a little bit until it gets warm. And she's just, she isn't just pouring it all right in there. She's stirring it in. That means she pours, stirs, pours, stirs, pours, stirs, pours, stirs. If you pour it all in at once, you're going to have a big mess, and it's going to keep a long time. So she's hitting this with the wooden spoon. That's why Ranger Gord isn't saying anything nasty because she's got a wooden spoon in her hand. And we're stirring this into a glop. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a loaf out of it. And sometimes if you get too much water in it, what do you have to do? Put in extra flour. And that's just to make sure that you get a, a, nice, a nice loaf. And she's stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring. I know Ranger Gordon, when he does this, he always wants to dump everything together, and that's why we have trouble, and that's why Rosie's here to do this. Interesting thing you can do, and if you've got some uh, of those Ziploc bags at home, you can make a lot of this ahead of time, and you can freeze it. And you don't have to use it just for bannock. You can use it for other kinds of dough. And you can use it for pizza dough, you can use it to make pierogies, just about anywhere that you would make dough. In fact, that's what we're going to do with this tonight. We're going to make some pizzas. And we're going to make one fry bread just for demonstration. So we're going to bring down the skillet, and this is just a frying pan. Whatever kind of frying pan you had. Now back in the day, they would have always had one of those great big cast iron frying pans with them because sometimes they were taking them into for trade. No, no, we're not always big ones, I shouldn't say, but there was those heavy iron ones. 
You can still buy them. They're getting more and more expensive, but uh, the neat thing about it, if you ever have one, you'll have it for the rest of your life. They never break. And she's got her hands in there, and you kids are going to love this. Of course, she has washed her hands. Make sure you're always washing your hands these days, especially these days. But she's washed her hands to make sure that the, the dough doesn't stick to her fingers too badly. And she's a-throwing, and she's a-tossing, and she's a-turning. and she, All while we keep it in the bowl. Don't be doing this outside of the bowl, because we don't want flour all over your parents' kitchen. So, interesting thing is that before flour came to North America, there were some First Nations bands that were actually making bannock, and they were making it out of different roots, that they, things that they were growing. And I'm just going to look that up because, oh, it's really interesting. Anywhere from Alaska to Arizona, they were making this. Now, what's also interesting, some bands continued to make bannock even after reserves came along. After they weren't able to hunt buffalo, and even when hunting was somewhat limited, they could always get the rations that they were getting from the government, and they could use this to make the bannock. And I'm being told to get out of the way, so here I go. Oh, she's getting out the pizza pan. So, so what we have done is we've taken the frying pan, and we've put some of the canola oil in there, and we put just enough oil on there. Don't fill it up. Just put enough so that it covers the whole bottom of the pan. Because what's going to happen is when you put this bannock in there, and what we're going to make is we're going to make a flatbread. In fact, if you talk to your Pakani people, they're not going to call it bannock. They're going to call it fry bread. Now, my mom used to make this all the time, and it was she called it a scone. And there's some people always argue about what a scone is and what a scone isn't. But, hey, my mom called it a scone, so therefore it's a scone. You want to argue with my mom? So she split a little bit off because, as I said, we're going to make a pizza out of this. And what you do with the pizza after is totally up to you. Oh, we're opening up. You can talk, Rosie. You can speak. This is on a recorder. The silent movie treatment doesn't work. <laughs> Charlie Chaplin did not make Bannock. Or maybe he did. Hard to say. As I said, yeah, it was all over England. Maybe Charlie Chaplin did eat Bannock. Who knows? And the kids are all asking who the heck Charlie Chaplin is. Well, that's another podcast. Now, as I was saying, before the natives had our, the flour that uh, was made from grain... They were making flour from maize, and maize is a kind of a corn, and different kind of roots and tree saps. And they were making their own kind of fry bread. Making it with the, the sort of a grain flour, though, that was a little bit different. Uh, now, when you get out into Montana and Idaho, the Nez Perce, they were, they were making it with camas bulbs. And camas is kind of like a wild turnip that grows in the ground. So they would take this, turn them up, cut, cut it up. And who knows, that could be somewhere somewhere that uh, Nietzsche Moose would have been able to learn how to make it as well. She would have certainly grown up with this recipe. So I'm sure the Kootenai Brown ate a lot of bannock. And Peter Fiddler, when he came from the Hudson's Bay Company, well, he would have brought that recipe with him too when he came to southwestern Alberta, when he came into the Gap. We got one little piece of here fry bread, and it's starting to cook here. Meanwhile, 
Rosie has taken another piece and she's spreading it out with her rolling pin right across the, uh, the big pizza pan that we have. So once we have that, we're going to probably add our cheese and meat and whatever it else, else we're going to put on. I don't think we have any. Oh, yeah, we're going to put pineapples, aren't we? And that's is the great argument. You put pineapples on a pizza. And I love Hawaii, so yes, of course you do. Well, I think that's is, uh, about all we need to do as the, uh, the fry pan uh, heats up here with the oil. She's put in about three or four of these and we're just heating it up with the stove and from here on it's just a point where you can see you can almost see the dough soak up the oil and as the oil starts to get hot it's going to start to fry so usually the flatter you can make it the better it is so that's what we're going to do we're going to let this cook and we're going to enjoy some scones and we're going to enjoy some pizza and as we said, while you're doing this, you can make some extra, put it in the Ziploc bags, freeze it, and it'll always be in your deep freeze or, the, or your freezer. And you can always pull it out. I think Rosie's going to say goodbye here because she's busy. Bye. Bye. She's, she's contributed a lot verbally to this. So now we know how Nietzsche Moose made bannock and fry bread. And um, if Kootenai Brown would have known about pizza, well, I'm sure he would have loved to have had a pizza. So, bye, everybody. Well, that's all for now, folks. Tune in again for more stories from Kootenai for Kids. You'll find us on your favorite podcatcher or set your interwebs on kootenaibrown.ca.